Well, as I mentioned, um, this is a good time to be joining us this week. If you are new here, this, uh, this is a sermon series. We're launching into something that's kind of an experiment, and uh, I hope that uh, you'll hang with us. It is uh, it's a little bit unusual, not the normal style that we preach. We're starting a series on, and uh, drum roll, God. Okay. It's a good topic, right? That's not abnormal, actually. We do talk about God quite a lot. Um, the goal with this series is we want to take a step back and we want to start from ground zero and ask the question, who or what is the God of the Bible? And I think that what we're going to find is going to be surprising for many of you. If we strip away all of our preconceived ideas about God based on 2,000 years of cultural interpretation, does the Bible's picture of God actually match the picture that we have been handed down by our Western civilization? And I think this is really important because if you hear someone simply say, hey, I believe in God, well, you might say, oh, I believe in God too, that's great. But you might actually mean two completely different things. Which God, we might say. For some, God is this warm, fuzzy teddy bear up in the sky. For others, God is an angry, wrathful judge. And you better get it right, because he's watching. How does God interact with the world? Is he close? Is he involved? Or is he distant and observing? What is his intended design for human beings? Are there other gods? I grew up believing, no, there's one God who exists in three persons. Read the Bible. It actually says, yes, many, many gods, though none like Elohim, or none like Yahweh, excuse me. No Elohim, no gods like Yahweh. That surprising? It was for me. Hang with me, because I promise I'm not going to be heretical, and uh, it is going to get interesting. By the way, if anything I say troubles you or surprises you, you feel kind of uneasy or upset and you have a question, you can email me at markb <laughs> at accweb.net. There we go. No, we actually I did put a, a thing in your bulletin that you could submit um, either in the box that's by the door or personally. If you do have questions, write them down. We'd love to dialogue about this. We'd love to, throughout the course of this series, maybe develop a Q&A session after the service. Or, I don't know, we've even talked about a podcast, if we can get our, our time and our heads and resources together on that. Um, we'd love to interact with questions you may have on this. So make sure you write them down as we go. Uh, we are taking a bit of a risk because it is a different kind of series. It's a little more classroom-like head knowledge, different than what we normally preach. We usually go through a book of the Bible at a time, and if you're worried that we're changing things too much, don't worry, we will go back to that. But there were a few factors involved in our decision to go down this road. We were thinking about going through the book of Hebrews. The first chapter of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is superior to the angels. It's making a big case for that. And so I read that and, and said, why would that be an issue? What are they hearing that I'm not hearing? What does it matter? Or in 1 Corinthians 8, when, uh, when Paul is, is telling the church, it's actually you know, not a big deal to eat food sacrificed to idols. Just don't go to the temples and you know, all meat comes from God. It's all right. Oh, and we know that 
idols are no thing. They're just wood and stone. Oh, but I'm not saying there are no other gods, he says. And we'll read this passage later. Indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Though for us, there is one God and one Lord. And then we go, what? <laughs> what, what is he talking about? And so this has led down a rabbit hole of study. Um, I've been listening to a podcast on this subject for the last nine months. I've been through a 400-page book called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. If you're interested in checking that out, that's a pretty heady one. If you want a more palatable one, there's a book called uh, Supernatural by Dr. Michael Heiser. Um, he's kind of a guru in this area. Um, one time I was leading worship a couple years ago, and uh, we led a song called Our God by Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin, I believe. And the lyrics go, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. And after leading that song, we did this a couple weeks ago even, um, but after that song, um, a member of the church emailed me and said something to the effect of, we don't believe there's other gods, so isn't it kind of wrong to sing this song? And uh, my response at the time was something along the lines of, well, anything could be worshipped as God in your life and so on, and, and we're just saying our God is not comparable to those things. Um, but it always left an uneasy feeling because there's this question, like this, this song comes from a scripture. What does that scripture mean? And so this is not ra random, but it was uh, this came over a course of a lot of time and over a lot of debate up until just about a week ago, I was still undecided as to whether we really wanted to go this route, because I wasn't sure how we were going to do it. As I said, it's kind of a, a class-type series, and um, I have four kids. There's no way I'm teaching an in-depth class anytime soon. So if we don't do it, it's not happening. And the challenge is, uh, I, this is important stuff, and uh, I'm going to try to do it in a way that reaches us as a message and not just information. Um, so we're just going to start. We're going to jump in. It's kind of an experiment. We're going to see what happens. <clears throat> Brian Nelson put it well in our Catalyst meeting. It doesn't matter who you are. Whatever your vision of God is, in some way it's wrong. In some way it's wrong. And I don't claim that we're going to solve that dilemma in this series or in this lifetime God is so vast and so unknowable that I believe we'll be learning more about Him for eternity. But He has revealed Himself through His Word. So what I want to do today is I want to start on page 1, and we're going to go and attempt to look at Genesis 1 through the lens of an ancient person. So I want you to imagine two things. That one, you are an ancient neighbor of Israel, a Moabite, a Canaanite, something or other. Two, that you know absolutely nothing about the Bible or the Israelite religion, uh, nor what Israelites believe about God. You have your own ideas about the gods and how the world was made and so on. But as for the Bible, you are starting from square one. You have, you have none of the preconceived ideas that, that we bring to the table. So here is what you would read. If you could read Hebrew and you're starting from page one, this is what you would understand. It's a very familiar verse. Um, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, you've probably heard it many times if you've been in the church for long. It goes like this. In the beginning, a spiritual being fattened the skies and the land. Having fun? Yeah. 
Is this making sense? All right. The very first problem we have, by the way, you probably saw it on the screen, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not how you would read it if you were an ancient person reading Hebrew for the first time. A spiritual being fat into the skies and the land. The very first problem we run into with our cultural notions of God is the word God itself. God in the Bible is never a name. So we say, dear God, uh, they don't do that. God is not a name. It is instead a classification for a kind of being. The word is Elohim. But let's get, get our you know, Hebrew nerd hats on and say Elohim with me. Elohim. All right. It's most often used to refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's very often translated to mean gods, lower G, gods. For instance, Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, Elohim of Elohim, and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. It's also used to describe Yahweh's heavenly host or His divine counsel, which are like His staff team or His knights of the round table, if you will. Psalm 82, verse 1 says, God has taken His place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. In the midst of the Elohim, He holds judgment. And we might say, well, isn't that just angels and demons? Well, these we're going to find as we go next week into it. We're talking about beings that have authority and rule over nations of people. So, it does get specific. The word Elohim does refer to angels and demons as well. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says, They sacrificed to the demons, not God, to gods whom they had not known. Elohim whom they had not known. It's even used to refer to disembodied spirits of dead human beings. In one instance, anyway. First Samuel, there's this strange story about how King Saul had fallen out of favor with God, and so Saul was looking for advice. And he uh, is upset because Samuel, the prophet, is dead. And, uh, and so he, he, he uh, gets a sorceress, a woman, to raise up Samuel's ghost from the dead so Saul can get advice from Samuel. Very strange. So this woman performs this act, and as Samuel is rising out of the ground, she says, Behold, I see an Elohim rising from the ground. So basically, the word refers to pretty much any being that occupies the non-physical spiritual realm. Any kind of spiritual non-physical being is referred to as Elohim. And this is the word that we translate as God. Do you see the problems? And by the way, English translators of the various Bible traditions and translations have incredible headaches over these kinds of passages. All over the place. I use the Bible software to study, and you can look at different versions side by side, and when you get into version, you know, translations about Elohim, the gods and their roles, people just don't know what to do with it. And there's a huge plethora of how they translate these words based on what they come to the table with. So there's, there's a lot of debate about this stuff. It's very interesting. Why is it that pretty much all of them, every version, 
will refer to God in Genesis 1 with a capital G, God. The reason they do that is because they get permission from chapter 2. You read ahead to chapter 2, it reveals that it is in fact Yahweh Elohim who created the heavens and the earth. But we're not there yet. We don't know that. So all we know is that a spiritual being created the skies and the land. What else do we know? By implication of the way the word is used, the author of Genesis believes there are many Elohim, many gods. Why? For one, the word Elohim is plural. If you add an im, I am, to the end of any word in Hebrew, it's the same as adding an s to a word in English, meaning more than one. The big G, God, is often referred to as plural Elohim, but there's usually a way that they distinguish it from among other gods so that you would know they're talking about the one God of Israel. They'll put the word the in front of Elohim, or they'll abbreviate it as El instead of Elohim, or there's a word Eloah, which is a singular form of Elohim. But all throughout Genesis 1, all you have is Elohim. Elohim said and it happened. Elohim. But the verbs are all singular. Uh, so think of it like this. Sheep can refer to one sheep, or I might be referring to many sheep, right? But if I say sheep does something, you know I'm talking about a single sheep. If I say sheep do something, you know I'm talking about probably many sheep. So it's kind of similar to this, I think that maybe is a fitting analogy. If you're confused, here's what the author is conveying to you. The author is deliberately being ambiguous with you. By keeping the word plural, he is acknowledging that there are many Elohim, many gods. But by making the verb singular, we know that he is talking about a particular Elohim, one. A God who is about to do something totally unique that sets him apart from all other gods. So far, we know that while there may be multiple Elohim, a particular Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's where we're at, if you've never read it before. That's the implications that we get. I did say the word fattened. That was mostly for shock value. Um, but the word created can be translated as fattened because it carries a different connotation. The, the, the what, what this God does is he takes something useless, and makes it amazing. It's like the idea of a deflated balloon being filled with helium. It's a blank art canvas and a whole bunch of palette of paints becoming an incredible masterpiece. It's a barren wasteland that's totally useless becoming a cultivated garden, a lush garden. The next thing we're going to learn about God is that in the way He creates, there's a message God is anti-chaos and anti-death. And he's all about to, go to, he's about to go to war in overcoming any condition that would result in chaos or death. Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Formless and void. Now, interestingly enough, if you sit down and just draw out this first six days of Genesis as the Bible describes them, linking words together, you get 
a grid of sorts. And we'll show it on the screen here, I hope. I think we have the image. There we go. We used this in our Genesis series a couple years ago when we preached through Genesis. But what you've got is a layout. Formless void. In the left-hand column, God is destroying formlessness by creating forms and separating them out and turning them into something that is no longer the chaotic, deep darkness of the waters that cannot sustain or support life, but becomes a, a space in which life can emerge and flourish. So day and night, skies and waters, seas and earth. The next column, days four through six, God destroys void. Lifeness, lifelessness, inhospitality to life by filling those forms with life. So for the day and the night, he fills it with the sun, moon, and stars. The skies and the waters, he fills it with the birds and the fish. And the land, he fills with, oh, all kinds of animals and creeping things that move on the ground. And he tells them all to fill and swarm on the earth, and so on and so on. So, this is going to set the stage for the whole rest of the Bible. It's going to teach you how to read Hebrew, if you could read Hebrew. Hebrew, Because the words and actions that are happening here are repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible as God repeatedly comes into contact with chaos and death. And you figure out what he's all about pretty quick. Now again, if you're an ancient reader, what, you are, what are you learning about this Elohim? Actually, there's a whole bunch of things from this that we can't talk about, and probably more than I even know. But uh, here's what would be going on in your own mind. You'd be saying, whoa, Baal didn't do that. Marduk didn't do that. In most surrounding creation stories of the time, the creation is a result of violence, not the erasing of violence. It's usually the result of a conflict between the gods. They rip the god Tiamat's body apart and thrust her into space and part of her becomes the earth and part of her becomes the moon and, and then humans are created kind of as slaves, kind of as an afterthought. This is the Babylonian Enuma Elish. Um, the gods aren't very interested in people generally. So here what you're noticing is one, um, by his word alone, not by the disembodied body parts of another god or some act of violence between gods. For one, by his word and by his spirit alone, this god is able to bring things into being from nothing. Instead of an act of violence, the creation is about pushing back violence. Two, and this we're going to have to flesh out a little bit. Unlike the beliefs of most other cultures at the time that you would believe in, this Elohim is actually responsible for the creation of the other gods themselves. In other words, all other gods are created. This one, as far as we can tell, is uncreated. How do we get that? Where does that come from? First, when you go all the way through Genesis 1, God is referred to as simply Elohim, implying that there may be others but so far, we have no idea what they're up to or where they came from. If you fast forward to the end, Genesis 2 says, Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The word is literally the horde of them. 
all the horde of heaven and of earth were finished. The word heavenly host is used all the time to refer to God's counsel, his spiritual beings, other Elohim. So somehow they showed up. God created them. Where did they come from? Well, back up even a little further. So far, every act of creation has been one Elohim creating by his word. But then we get to day six. We get to people. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the, uh, in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So who is the us? Christians like to associate it with the Trinity. I think you can certainly make a case for that. But as one reading the Bible for the very first time, you don't know that. All you know is that it was speaking in terms of one Elohim, and now there is an us. Where did they come from? Well, actually, and I hope I don't lose some of you here, but uh, as an ancient person, you would actually already be able to answer that. Because in virtually every culture, including our own, there's an association with the sun, moon, and stars as spiritual entities, as gods. So, we get our screen back up there, our image back up there. Day four, we have the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Deuteronomy 4.19 says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all of the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. He's talking about the divine counsel that he has given delegated authority to rule over the nations referred to as the sun, moon, and stars and is saying don't worship them. Deuteronomy 17.24 If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns of the Lord get, uh, that the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of His covenant and contrary to My command has worshipped other gods bowing down to them or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars in the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. And there's a whole bunch more. When Job is questioned, why all this suffering? One of his answers that he gives, I think in chapter 1, I don't have it written down, is, if I've been tempted by the sun, moon, and the stars to go and worship them and drawn away from God, that would be one thing, but I haven't. My favorite is Job 38, 4-7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is a beautiful picture. There was a moment in the creation of the world where all the sons of God, Bene Elohim, son of Elohim, as opposed to Bene Adam, sons of men. We're talking about spiritual beings. The morning stars were shining together. And at this great triumphant motion, uh, moment of 
bringing the world into being in all of its glory. They are shouting and singing for joy as one. And it's an amazing picture because down the road something happened. And that is no longer the case. Once again, if you're an ancient person, oh, and by the way, we still have this today. Go and look in your newspaper. There's a horoscope section, right? We look to the stars to tell us our future. Okay, we're still identifying the sun, moon, and stars with God. So what do you know? What do do you know? If you're an ancient person, here's what you're going to pick up on. This Elohim created a human family and a divine family. And both are made in God's image. The reason we deduce that is because he said, let us make mankind in our image, which would mean that these beings would have been made in his image as well. What does that mean to be made in God's image? It means a number of things, and that's a whole sermon unto itself. But from this passage, we can draw at least this. That human beings have been given dominion and rule over God's creation, and that we are meant to be a reflection of who God is in the way we conduct that rule. We're meant to be imagers. We're meant to reflect Him in the way we interact with the world around us. If you notice from our slide, pull it up again, of all the things that fill or swarm on the earth, there are only two things that are told to rule. Human beings and the sun, moon, and stars. Humans are told to rule over everything from the skies to the land and the oceans and so on, whereas the hosts of heaven are told to rule over the day and night, the seasons. They're to serve as signs, and I don't understand all that that means. But notice, they are not given dominion over one another's turf. They're not to cross paths. They're not supposed to take dominion from us. And we are not supposed to reach out and aspire to be like them. A divine family and a human family, two different counterparts for two different realms, told to rule as God's imagers the whole cosmos. This is extremely alarming for us. That God would take and actually invite people to participate in the running of His world That would be a first. I had someone come to me a couple years ago and say, hey, I just have a question. I don't understand prayer. Why do we pray? What's the point? I mean, we believe that God knows everything, and we believe that God is all-powerful and He can do everything. So why pray if He knows what should happen or if He knows what's going to happen, and if He can do anything, wouldn't He just do what needs to be done Anyway, or wouldn't it all just go according to his plan in the end? Why do we need to pray? And I probably didn't have a good answer at the time. But consider, and I mentioned this if you were at the National Day of Prayer, but consider, suppose I want to build something. I want to build a desk. I want to build a table. I want to build a cabinet or a, you know, a musical instrument or something like that. I've got my plans. I've got my will for what it's going to look like. And I can certainly use the tools I have and use my hands and do what I want to do. I'm perfectly capable of that. But what if the whole point of this project is to get my son and to say, I want to show you how to do this. I want to invite you into this project 
with me, that our whole family is going to benefit from. It's going to be my plans and my will for it through your hands. I'm going to show you how to use the tools. It might look a little shoddy at first because we're learning, but I'm inviting you into this process. Why prayer? Because God could do anything he wants by himself, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to because the way he designed this cosmos is that his will would go out through the prayers and the hands and feet of people. You mean God's holding back? Maybe. He might just do it. I don't know. But his intention is that his will is enacted through you. Which means that you and I are most ourselves and we are most human when in our free will, our will aligns with his. That is when we are most who we were made to be is when our will aligns with his and our actions are carrying out his design and his plan. That's why we pray. It could happen. It should happen. God knows the big picture. But we pray because it might not, unless we do. There's another implication of this. Why? What is the goal of Christianity? Why does God save us? What's the point of salvation? What are we saved for? We, we know the message. That we're all sinners. We've all blown it in some way. And God sent His one and only Son because He loved us. He loved the world. To take care of our sin problem. To make a way for us to be forgiven so we can have a right relationship with God. Well, that's true, but it's also very flat. It doesn't speak nearly to the big picture. You're not saved just for a relationship. You're saved to rule. You're saved to reign with God, as it says in Revelation 5. You have done it. You've made them a kingdom of priests, and they will reign on the earth. It's about a restored partnership where his human hands and feet are carrying out his will on the earth. So what does that look like? It means that in every sphere of existence, in business, in education, the home, in politics, human beings are called upon to claim and cultivate this world for God. We are to reject and declare not good when we see in our environment, something that is chaotic or not supportive or hospitable for life to flourish in its fullness, to be fruitful. We are to declare as good the creation of environments that set up order and protection and human flourishing and a place for life to dwell richly and securely. When we hear the word rule as God's stewards, I think we get like, whoa, what is that? We have this big grand picture of what that looks like, but it's often in the small things. It's when I saw my wife showing my daughters how to plant seeds in our garden. She's reflecting the image of God. Cultivating, separating things out to create a space 
for life to flourish that will support and enrich people. That's who God is. There's a good quote from the Lord, well, it's from The Hobbit. It's Peter Jackson's quote. I don't think it's actually Tolkien, but he's, it's uh, Gandalf the wizard speaking. And he says, Saruman, the other wizard, believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? The little hobbit. Um, perhaps because I'm afraid. And he gives me courage. So, if I've lost you, what do we know so far? Just from reading Genesis 1, unfiltered, from a blank slate, what we know is that an Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Two, unlike any other Elohim, this one creates by His Spirit and by His Word. Three, this Elohim is against inhospitable chaos and death and is for order, peace, and life. Four, this Elohim is set apart from all others in that He is uncreated, whereas all other Elohim, as well as human beings, are created by Him. Five, this supreme Elohim has chosen to conduct the rule over all creation through His family of both human and divine imagers. Which means that you and I are invited to participate in that rule. And that is, in fact, the very purpose of your being. You are most you when your free will is in sync with God's will and His action. Now this raises a lot of questions. For one, we know that something has gone terribly wrong. We know that we are not really capable of fully holding chaos at bay. And in very often, in our selfishness, we create it from the smallest forms in our arguments with our spouses and our children to the greatest wars that have ever been fought. We contribute to chaos and death every bit as much as we push it back. So what happened? Next week, we're going to tell the story of gods and men. You may already know the story of a human rebellion in Genesis 6. We're also going to tell the story of a divine rebellion amongst the heavenly realms. Another question that might be raised. When I grew up, I believed in monotheism. And I believed that monotheism meant there is only one God and that He exists in three persons. At least the Christian version of it does. If you just look up the word monotheism in uh, Google, I think it quotes the Oxford Dictionary, it says, the doctrine or belief that there is only one God. And so we go, aren't we monotheistic? What's the deal with all this stuff with other gods? By implication, by that definition, there are no other beings that can be identified or described by that word God. But even if you do a surface level reading through the Bible, you will find that that is absolutely not the case. So it's an interesting question. How in the world did we as Christians get to a place where we would accept that definition of monotheism when that is not remotely close to what the Bible actually teaches? A better definition for biblical monotheism, I'm quoting Tim Mackey here, uh, and I think he's quoting someone else, but I don't know who. who. 
He says, monotheism in the Bible is a devotion and allegiance to the particular God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Israel and ultimately in Jesus and the belief that that God is the supreme creator and ruler of all among all other gods who might claim your allegiance. We have statements in the Old Testament like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh, the Lord is one. Or the first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me. Do they mean, therefore, that no other gods exist? And you shouldn't go worshiping these fake gods over here from these old other cultures. Well, one good way to think about it might be, if you get on Facebook and you get on an Anacortes page, like Anacortes Buy, Sell, Trade, or something like that, every once in a while you'll see someone uh, pop in there with a question, does anyone have a good recommendation for a plumber or an electrician or a photographer? Or, you know, you get the idea. And people will start chiming in, oh, there's this guy, there's this company, here's a link to their website, you know, so-and-so. But, but someone jumps in there and says, there is only Dan. Dan is the plumber. There is none beside him. Dan brings donuts when he comes. He does an immaculate job and has a perfect track record. He follows up two days later. You know, just like all the reasons why there is no plumber but Dan. But they're not actually saying there are no other plumbers, right? Biblical monotheism is the unique devotion to a particular God who created all things, including the other spiritual beings who are trying to get your allegiance. And we might say, well, wait a minute. I was always raised to believe that, okay, it might talk about other gods, but isn't that a cultural misconception? Didn't we kind of grow out of that? Doesn't the New Testament kind of say there really isn't any other god? There's just God. There's just Yahweh. No. 1 Corinthians, again, Paul is talking to the church and he's answering a question, is it okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? And he says in verse 4, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists. In other words, wood and stone is, is not a god. It's not a thing. And that there is no god but one. Okay, well, there we have it. Then he goes on. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The biblical authors all throughout believe that there are many Elohim, and the reason this is important for us is because a huge number of them are operating in the world in ways that maybe in our ignorance we don't recognize. And they 100% hate your guts. And they will do anything they can to eternally destroy you. And it's important to understand how does that work? What are they doing? What are they up to? Ephesians 6 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
It is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of darkness in the heavenly realm. So something has gone terribly wrong. There is a whole host of Elohim who have power in the world, and they're against you. Psalm 8 is an interesting psalm. If we ask the question, why would people be drawn to worship other gods? Why wouldn't this be an easy answer? Why, why is it that the entire Old Testament drama is all about Israel's propensity to commit adultery with God and, from God and go after these other gods? What was so alluring about that? Haven't we grown out of that in our modern culture, which would basically make the whole Old Testament irrelevant? Because like, and there's a lot of value in the Old Testament, but in terms of the struggle, that is it. Is it completely irrelevant for us? What's going on that they struggled with? Do we struggle with it? Psalm 8 is a beautiful psalm, and starting in verse 3, he writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I think, remember, there's a connotation there. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And so there's this guy looking in the celestial body. And there's Job saying, hey, if I've been tempted by the sun, moon, and stars to go and worship this over here, then you know, this would be just. And he's looking and he's saying, there is something so alluring and so beautiful and perfect about this. And yet, God, why would you care about these smelly, hairy human beings crawling around on the ground? What is it that you care about us when there's this? And then he says, Yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We may not relate to this, but here's what it's saying. There's a tragic irony in the world. Why would they go after other gods? Probably at the core is a belief that I'm not enough. And I can be more. And I can gain more by listening to the promises of this other worship over here. I can bow down to this statue, this image, and become subservient to it. And it will give me the strength I need, the power I need to be somebody. But the tragic thing about that is that God says, the reason I don't want you to make an image is because you are the image. You are the image. So when you try to become more by becoming subservient to a being that is created, has a free will, and is every bit as fallible as you are, and you idolize that being and go after it, becoming less than it, you're actually letting go of your crown. You're made for more. You share a status with that being as a ruler, given dominion and rule and authority over all the works of God's hand. And we may think we don't do this today. But we put Thor on the big screen and flock to the theaters because there's something about those Avengers that really attracts us. Something about the power. Something about 
the dynamic of human might overcoming the world. We love the Jedi. We love, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this picture in and of itself necessarily. What's going on? What's going on in here? There's an allure to something because we view it as greater than what we are in and of ourselves. And that's true. We're fallen human beings. But what God says we are in line with him is far greater than anything we are idolizing. Hebrews 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by the power of His Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that if you're in Christ, you are seated there with Him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority that human beings in Christ are representing um, a position that is usurping the rebellious Elohim. And they are losing ground. And they are losing position. And they will be replaced. As Psalm 82, a psalm that is actually written to those beings, says, I said you are gods, but you will die like men. And in Christ, God restores us to a glorious position. Our temptation is to go running after much less because we think it's much more. Jesus has made a way for you to be more you and more real and more full than anything you could have ever imagined. Don't go running after something else to fill that and to create that in you. He is where you find it. Let's pray. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is this scuzzy human being that doesn't always smell very good and gets it wrong and can't seem to do relationships right and tends to create chaos? And Lord, the fact that you hold out hope for us and hang on to us be restored to the people in the position that you designed us for. That's astonishing. You certainly don't deserve it. So we thank you that you stepped in. You provided a way. You paid for our sin on the cross. You opened the door for us to be restored to you. Sit at your right hand. Be what we were made to be. God, I pray as we go through this story, this series, that our eyes would open to the way the world is working around us. And that we'd be effective in being image bearers. Human beings enacting your will through your through our hands and feet. That is what you desire. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.